happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across the United States, across North America, and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for June the 7th, 2017. My name is Wes Fryer, and I'm excited to be coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School, and I am so excited to be joined by Dr. Scott McLeod, guru of all educational leadership and educational technology leadership, one of the true Yodas who has been doing the Web 2.0 sharing thing for a long time and is now transplanted from Iowa to Denver. How are you tonight, Scott? I'm doing great, Wes. Thanks. Did, uh, how, how do you elevator speech what you're doing now? Because you're with the University of Colorado at at Denver in downtown. Is that right? Yeah, right. So, and just like before, I'm a professor of school leadership, preparing principals and superintendents, and then doing a lot of work with school districts and doing the professor thing, as always. That's great. That's great. Well, um, we are excited. If you're joining us live, we're going to... Um, have our chat room as usual uh, to hopefully field any questions or thoughts that anybody may have if we got some live viewers. But for everyone, whether you're viewing this live or later, you can access the links that we're going to be talking about at edtechsr.com slash links. And generally, we are talking about relatively recent news and how those things have a application to schools and in educational technology. And there was, there's been a heck of a lot going on, especially with Apple. I dropped in a link and we could, you know, talk WWDC. There's all, all sorts of things. We want to let you know that Jason Neifer is out on assignment tonight in Sweden doing something that I am sure, is, in fact, it's probably the daytime. Who knows? Maybe he's asleep. But uh, I've been watching him on Twitter and Instagram and um Actually, had a pretty interesting headline uh, referencing our commander in chief. <laughs> I think he had shared it on Instagram. But there'll, there'll be lots of travel stories when he comes back. I am sure. So hopefully, he has taken all of the great security advice to heart that we've given, and he will not have his identity sucked up by any customs officials on you know e any side of international lines as he's going back and forth. We trust he's gonna he's gonna be safe. So. Scott, do you want to uh, suggest an article that we, we chat about? And usually we'll just, you know, give you a little insight a little bit and I'll chime in and then we'll kind of see how, how far that goes and, and go to the next one. Where would you like to start tonight? Uh, let's start with the uh, cutter and it's Gulf Neighbors article because I'm curious why you put that one in there. Okay. All right. Well, um, so the, the uh, article link is um, – Actually, I think this is just on Medium. Uh, it's called three, yeah, three potential motives behind the tension between Cutter and its Gulf neighbors. And um, well, one of the technology connections is there was a cyber attack which happened on one of the the, the Cutter news agencies uh, about a week or so ago. And the allegations are that well, what what the news agencies were releasing was that the Emir of Cutter. Uh, was saying that President Trump is not going to be in office very long. And so it was a, a derogatory statement towards President Trump. Um, I'm, I'm a little more knowledgeable about Qatar because I was there in 2011 doing a presentation at a middle school conference. And so um, it was very kind of surreal, the whole experience flying over there first class and just a amazing school and, and just that whole whole situation. But I came up, became a lot more aware of what's happening, you know, with us as far as our oil interests and our military and all this stuff. 
So uh, this is the first instance I'm aware of where we've seen Arab states have uh, conduct a cyber attack against each other. And one of the things that we've talked on the show making this, you know, technology in school link is, you know, we really need kids to um, have opportunities in school to learn coding and to, to, you know, learn how to fully participate in the digital universe of the 21st century. And increasingly, that is going to involve cybersecurity. I've heard people say that, you know, every board of directors, just like today, they'll have an accountant and somebody who's good with the books. You would never have a board that wouldn't be able to make sure that, that the organization is being fiscally responsible, that cyber is going to be equally important. And, you, and you're going to need folks who have that kind of expertise. So this is a fascinating thing from a geopolitical standpoint. Um, you know, President Trump was just over in the Middle East and was greeted with all kinds of fanfare in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, we just don't know what's going on with this. We've we've we're, we've seen the rise of cyber, you know, with the with elections, with what happened in the United States election uh, with Russia, with what happened with the Brexit vote. And so, um, you know, I just think that. This is a huge geopolitical deal because it started, I think, with maybe uh, four Gulf countries, um, mainly Saudi Arabia, and and now it's up to ten. They don't allow um, any of the the uh, aircraft of Qatar to go into Saudi airspace or any of the airspace of these other countries. It's a blockade, and it and we don't know that it's like the Berlin airlift. The question is whether or not you know how is the United States going to respond? Are we going to respond? Qatar cannot survive really without outside support. So are we going to see? Qatar make a move or uh, Saudi Arabia make a move like Russia did to take over the Crimea and actually try to redraw political lines? Or are we going to see um, the United States stand up? Because that I mean, I know it's millions of dollars. It's probably billions of dollars that we have invested there in our uh, air base. And it's um, some one other thing that I learned is, you know, Saudi Arabia is a very interesting country as far as the Saud family and the, and the ruling family. And, and they really haven't been none of the the Arab states have been excited about the Arab Spring movement and the whole pro-democratic movement. And and in Qatar, they're unique because they give either, I think it's 40% of their oil revenue directly to their citizens. So they have the most wealthy citizens uh, basically in the world. And, um, you know, when I was there uh, for this conference, some of the teachers were talking about, you know, the chauffeurs that, that all, you know, the kids had were, were being driven to school and dropped off by and the, the parents that had been, you know, Bedouin tribes folks that that maybe as they were not maybe when they were young had had brought the camels in and they had lived out on the on the desert and now they're driving Hummers and you know multimillionaires it's just it's really crazy so anyway I think my main connection as far as school had to do with cyber attack our interest in cyber and and talking you know school and cyber so do you have any thoughts about that or or I guess just on the topic of of cyber and how that relates to schools school leadership and you know no, what we need to be doing. I'm reminded a few years back when Estonia got hit so hard, uh, right. you know, and almost crippled the entire country, uh, yep. you know, and of course suspicions of Russian hackers and so on. And uh, we've only heard the tip of the cyber iceberg. I think, you know, I think a lot of this is going on behind the scenes. They don't want to let anybody know, right. You know, we're reading stories about companies that are getting hacked. Their database is getting hacked. They're losing, millions and tens of billions of dollars, not tens of billions, but tens of millions or more, and they don't want to tell anybody, right, because it damages their reputation. They're, like, taking these massive financial hits, and nobody even knows about it because they're trying to keep it under wraps. 
because we're going to have the effect on the stock price or whatever. So whether it's governments or companies, you know, we're just getting started with all this. Absolutely. Well, and I've shared, I haven't written a blog post about it and I'm a little bit leery too. Um, but I have mentioned it on the show that I had what I'm pretty confident was a targeted Russian attack on my main blog. I've had two in the last four months and they had to do with a, a, a post I wrote about Brian Krebs book, Spam Nation, who he's real prominent cyber researcher and, um, was the target of the large Mirai botnet attack that happened this last fall, which was the largest denial of service attack that's happened to date. And so anyway, um, you know, I've really had an education, further education about security as a tech director. I'm really, um, you know, very focused on that. We're in the process right now of transitioning all our teachers over to two-step ver- uh, verification on their Google accounts. Um, that'll be required and enforced after Christmas break. But right now it's, it's optional, but password managers, security, uh, these are, these are hugely important things, uh, for us as a school and, you know, for individuals in terms of thinking about identity theft and, and all the impact. So I did, uh, Scott drop into the Google hangout, um, chat, the link to the pop-out chat. So if you want to do that, Peggy Hello. George is out there in Phoenix, Arizona. Hello, Peggy. We're excited hey, that you're here and, uh, feel free to, Drop into the chat any questions that you would like to pose. I'm sure, Peggy, you can stump Scott with some extremely challenging questions tonight about <laughs> school law and educational leadership. So feel free to feel free to do that. Um, have you you've traveled to India a bunch? Have you been to the Middle East, Scott? I have not been to the Middle East. I've been to India four times now. I'm heading back in February, but. So tell us an interesting story about India, something that was like, you know, surprising, something that stood out. I'm sure there's probably a million things. And were you all in the same city or different cities? I spent most of my time in Mumbai working with the American School of Bombay. I uh, have also been to Delhi and uh, Agarwal and Taj Mahal. Um, you know, India is an interesting place of contrast, you know, right Below the gleaming sky, modern, most modern skyscraper you can imagine with huge billboards advertising the latest cell phone service, right? And jewels and luxury cars is the most awful slum you've ever seen, right? And they're right next to each other. And you just see that everywhere. There's sort of this incredible juxtaposition of economic growth and wealth combined with just the most abject poverty you can imagine. And they're five feet from each other on the other side of a wall. Yeah. Right. When, uh, spring break before this, I had a chance to go to Sao Paulo, Brazil for the first time. And the school where I was doing a little STEM workshop was right by a favela, which is one of their, their shanty towns. In fact, there were some folks who worked at the school and their kids could go to school free is pretty awesome. But I mean, it, yeah, just right, right next door. And, um, you know, and we, we have similar things here in the United States, but perhaps, you know, the level of poverty that, um, that right. contrast well, you have is, is at a different scale. I mean, it has been for what I certainly see here in Oklahoma City. Oh, it's definitely a different scale, but we also zone differently. So, you know, our affluent people keep themselves a little further apart. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Okay, well, uh, let's see. I think I will take us to talk a little bit about WWDC. Um, Apple's got several different events, of course, that they host throughout the year, and generally in the fall we see them 
bring out new iPhones, and um, that's you know usually that's the the cycle as far as iPhone refresh. But June, first week of June, is generally the uh, Worldwide Developer Conference. So I dropped a link in there to the Mac Rumors post and video, everything Apple announced it at WWDC 2017 in seven minutes. And I have been listening to uh, you know several different podcasts. I like, like to listen to The Committed, and uh, I like to listen to Clockwise, and those um, are both pretty Apple-focused uh, um, podcast talking about you know what stood out to them, and so the main thing that stood out to me in all this, and there's the you know the I think they kind of had dumb names right. We've got Air you know High Sierras the new Mac OS, and we've got the AirPods which are is, no is that right? Whatever what are they calling the speaker? They've got they've got the, the speaker that's going to basically be kind of like an Alexa and Google Home and, and AI. The thing that I think is the biggest deal for schools is really how the iPad is becoming even more functional as a potential laptop replacement. And so they announced that the screen sizes on both what was a 9.7-inch iPad Pro as well as the larger, whatever it, it is, I don't know what how many inches it is, but the, the really monster big one, um, both of those have become bigger. But Apple Pencil is a, is supposed to be about 20% better, and they announced a file system. And this is huge because the, one of the biggest things about working on an iPad has been, you know, this is something Steve Jobs believed, that people have trouble with file systems and saving and, you know, locations and finding stuff. And so it was better to just not have one. But that's really challenging when you are working with files and you need to put stuff in folders and you've got projects, et cetera. So they've actually got a files app. And iOS 11 now is in uh, developer hands. And there's going to be a public beta that will be available soon if people want to try it early. But it'll be released in the in the fall along with uh you know, probably the iPhone 8 and whatever other new products that Apple has to announce at that time. But the fact that it has a file system, it now has a dock, it has new drag and drop functionality that's very desktop-like, except it's even fancier than what you can do with a mouse because of multi-touch and the fact that you can have multiple points of contact. And then it also has... um a uh, environment as far as multitasking that looks a lot like spaces, which I'm not a fan of spaces on my Mac, but that's where you have a set of applications that you'll have over here and then you'll switch, you know, switch over. So I don't know. I've, I have uh, a teacher, our uh, seventh, no, eighth grade uh, algebra teacher who has been flipping his class this last year. And uh, I guess for a couple years, really. And he's been using explain everything and doing narrated slideshows. He's just been starting with some videos and I'm really he's 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 been using um, an Adonit stylus, which is one that I like, but it was kind of hard with the kids, you know, using it this year. I'm very excited to see where he's going to go because we're going to, I think, be able. To, uh, he's with his division director or principal. He's going to be able to to get uh, one of the newer iPad Pros, and that may be a replacement. We have provided a generally for 95% of our teachers a MacBook laptop as their laptop. We've got a few Windows users out there. But we haven't ever had somebody say, hey, I want an iPad instead of having a laptop. So anyway, that was the biggest thing that stood out for me for WWDC. Were you glued to your, your seat watching it live, Scott? Or where, where are you on the Apple fanboy continuum? Uh, well, I'm a user of many things Mac, but I'm not a fanboy. Um, I did get a chance to have dinner with Ben Wilkoff Monday night. Awesome. 
article because, you know, he was telling us about the several podcasts he listened to regularly and how, you know, he was screaming with glee at every announcement and whatever. So it was just pretty funny to watch yeah. to that close to somebody who is a fanboy the evening after the announcement. But Absolutely. So are, uh, are you seeing – how do you see the iPad being used in your environment with college students? And then as you've worked with schools and things, I know Iowa, lots and lots of, of one-to-one and lots and lots of right. Apple. So what, where, where have you seen that move, let's say in the, in the last few years? And what do you see in your environment now in terms of uh, iPad usage versus I see a lot of college students with iPads. If they do, it's a secondary device. They're carrying laptops around. Um, they need to access canvas or blackboard or whatever they need the keyboard for uh, you know large-scale writing assignments and um, a lot of them depending on what field they're in say engineering they have to do basically do a windows machine because of the software because you know at least they don't know how to do parallels or whatever so i don't really see a lot of ipads at the college level um the one-to-one initiative in iowa that is now 220 districts strong and steamrolling uh, went through sort of three big waves. The first wave was Mac laptops. The second wave was iPads because they were cheaper. Um, and because by that time, people started rolling devices down to the elementary and realized the form factor was easier for the younger kids. And then Chromebooks took over everything. Really? Um, so uh, huge numbers of districts rolled over to Chromebooks. Um, Wow. Because of the price point and the district-level management tools. Yeah. Well, and, and the fact that the web um, is mature. Turd so much. There's so much more you can do with the web and the fact that Google Docs and then Google Classroom came out. So yeah, so I think Apple has taken in Iowa at least has taken a really big hit. Yeah. Yeah. We were just reflecting at school today. Um, we added about 115 Chromebooks last year, mainly in our high school. And it's been incredible how few repairs we've had. There was one machine that got a lot lost and that, you know, students ended up paying a fine for, and we have had a key, uh, a Z key on one that we've replaced, and we've got one screen that, you know, had a line on it that wasn't that big of a deal. But, you know, for the number of checkouts that we had, um, we yeah. had uh, 30 of them in our library, and then we, we have three carts in different buildings. We went with uh, the Dell Mini 10s, you know, four gigs of RAM. It's just been a really hardy laptop that stood up to uh, quite a bit of um, – of use and you know it's uh it's a dream to manage so we're in the midst of transitioning mobile management wise from the Meraki mobile device manager over to one called Tab Pilot and it's uh, about a third of the cost and has really good teacher features and I think that was my geek of the week last week so anyway I'm in the midst of all that and and if if you have the opportunity to manage both Chromebooks as well as iPads and and throw in you know Mac laptops, Windows laptops, you know, you quickly love the Chromebook as an IT person. So yeah, Absolutely. And, you know, they're so inexpensive now, and yet you still get a hardy machine that even when you lose one, you take a $280, $300 Chromebook over four right. years. And, you know, right. a, you know for $75, 70 or something happens to you, it's essentially disposable. Absolutely. Well, Peggy George has dropped a good tidbits article link uh, in, and I'll put that into the show notes, uh, summarizing the WWDC highlights from an Apple perspective. And Ben Wilkoff is in the chat as well. And he says that native screen recording uh, definitely, you know, stood out for him. The drag and drop features, 
you know, and picture in picture apps. So yeah, I really, I really, I've wondered, I mean, there are folks and I have, I really haven't traveled. Certainly when I'm doing presentations, I haven't had that, the guts to just say, Hey, I'm just doing iPad only. Um, you know, I've always traveled still with a laptop, but I think, I think that Apple, this is, we've talked about this on the show a lot, right? That Apple is not putting their, their, uh, faith into the idea of a touch screen with a laptop. So we're seeing these hybrid yoga laptops and these, uh, these, you know, um, Microsoft with, with their Surface Books, you know, they've, they've got the laptop with the, the touch interface. And so it seems like Apple is continuing to, you know, put faith in the idea that you could have a separate device and that the touch interface is going to offer um, a unique experience. And, you know, it's, the two shall not meet as far as the laptop and the iPad. So that's pretty, pretty interesting. I still love iPads for younger kids. <laughs> yeah, well, and I love them for creating and making, you know, for, for being able to do green screen video. Uh, we're, we've got our elementary kids and teachers going gangbusters with Seesaw, with digital portfolios, being able to take pictures of work, being able to record their voices, you know, being able to do book snaps where they're taking a snap of something they're reading and then they can highlight it and they can, you know, read it in their own voice and, and all those kind of things. So Ben, Ben says that he did all his sessions from the iPad Pro today at a conference. So yes, we have we have people among us who are able to go iPad only. So oh that's great. All right. Well, where would you like to go next? Or would you like me to propose an article? Uh you can. Go ahead. Okay. I'm gonna jump down to uh what's now link eleven. It's a Bloomberg article from June first called One of CRISPR's Creators Faces Her Fears. And we have talked about this on the show before. CRISPR is an incredible technology which allows for um, DNA editing, gene editing. And there's actually a controversy right now over, you know, what who who the discoverers, inventors of CRISPR uh, were. And evidently, it, it it looks like some other kinds of innovations that happen in history was are sort of parallel and things are are being discovered by maybe two different groups or two different people at the same time. Um, but this uh, article by Robert Kolker um, talks about um, microbiologist Jennifer uh, Doudna. She's at the University of California at Berkeley. And um, she has recently published a book that tells her story about um, how they they came up, uh, upon CRISPR and CRISPR allows scientists to to basically cut out literally snip out um, parts of the DNA chain that are not correct in 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 in, in one case use because there's all kinds of case uses and then have the other DNA, the other DNA in the area and enzymes you know stitch it back together so there's hope of of curing huntington's disease i'm pretty sure i've read about parkinson's on the show a few weeks ago we shared that in mice they have eliminated hiv using crispr and so um it, this is this is huge stuff. And so if you've got any of your own kids, your grandkids that you can like steer towards genomics, you know, one of the links here is that we need everybody talking about ethics. Um, there's all kinds of ethical issues that come up with coding, with the ways in which algorithms are written and and what they present or what they don't present. Um, you know, CRISPR is this technology that's going to present all kinds of possibilities, not only for curing 
um, di- you know, disabilities and illnesses and uh, diseases, but it's going to open up the Pandora's box of Frankenstein and Jurassic Park and all kinds of things in terms of, of what, you know, scientists can do. And so in this book, and I haven't read her book, uh, just learned about this. Uh, it's called A Crack in Creation, Gene Editing and the Unthinkable Power to Control Evolution. Um, the article says that she really goes in depth about the possible futures of you know, using CRISPR and what this can mean, not just to the present day, but, you know, evolutionary wise, like for forever in terms of editing stuff. So, <coughs> Scott, have you have you read much about CRISPR and got any thoughts about uh, gene editing? Are you going to going to sign up to uh, give away your DNA sequence to the cloud and, and find out, you know, what your your possible my, uh, medical future would be? Uh, so you shouldn't do that because then, of course, your insurance company will get a hold of it and decide you have a pre-existing condition. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Uh, or, or it'll be hacked, and somebody else uh, that you didn't intend is going to have access to all that. So, right. So that's one of the risks. Um, no, I think CRISPR is actually really fascinating. You know, there's all kinds of, as I just said in the show notes, in, uh, exciting possibilities, but also really scary possibilities. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the ethics angle. This is one of those areas where we're creating new jobs, right? We're going to see the creation of a whole slew of genetic counselors and ethicists, um, people that we didn't know we needed a few years ago, one of these new jobs that didn't exist. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and the debate is open as far as whether or not those uh, there's going to be enough of those jobs to offset the truck drivers that aren't going to have jobs and the taxi drivers and, and all that. There, there won't be. Right. Yeah. 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 Really, yeah, really interesting ethical issues, right? If you talk to people about it and you're like, so do you think that uh, people, uh, um, parents who have a high chance of having a child with disabilities ought to be able to design their baby to avoid that? And they're like, a lot of people will say yes. Uh, you know, and then it's, then you say, well, what if you want to design for athletics or intelligence or, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes or whatever? And all of a sudden we start getting nervous uh, and then we were like, you know, what if we want to get into superhuman traits or, you know, whatever, like, cause these, nobody knows where the lines are right now, other than a lot of people are saying we should just stay away from humans, period. But that's not going to last forever. Absolutely. Well, that's actually a, a nice segue to another link that we've got in the show notes. And this one is a video. Um, Eric Schmidt is the CEO of Alphabet, which is the, um, parent company now of Google. One of the things that I, one of the practical ways that I've really been enjoying the benefits of AI is through, uh, YouTube recommendations because you know, the more you sort of train the machine saying, I like this video and you actually watch an entire video because YouTube tracks that as far as how much you watch. Then in, in your recommended videos, it will, it'll say, Oh yeah, Wes likes AI. So it'll start showing more, more videos. So I've, I've been able to see some pretty amazing things. And this is, uh, from the RSA conference on May 2nd, 2017. The title was Google's Great AI Awakening. We didn't even know we hired the best AI scientists in Google. And, uh, he tells the story of how, um, you know, Google and, and, um, uh, actually, I think in Canada, some Canadian um, artificial intelligence researchers really, you know, invested and had a breakthrough in machine learning and in neural nets and, and have really ushered in what is now, it's really like toddler days, like we're barely starting to walk with AI, but it is 
looking like an incredible golden age. Um, but it's also, of course, going to have, you know, upsides and downsides. So I'd really commend this video. It's about 40 minutes long as a really good insight into the story of kind of how that came about. But the thing that the things that Schmidt says about AI that it's really good at and it's rapidly going to because it's so much computers now with AI are so much better. It really has to do with seeing and being able to see patterns. And so the impacts he says that's going to have, we've heard this before on driving, you know, that we're going to very soon see truck driving disrupted. We're going to see taxi driving disrupted. And then ultimately the entire auto industry, many people are talking about because it's going to with electric cars as well as with artificial intelligence. Um, some, you know, some people are saying that we're, we're, we're not going to even really want to own cars anymore. It's going to be so cheap to just rent one when you need one. But the other thing he talks about is in medicine, being able to identify things from x-rays, from MRIs, um, you know, avoiding misdiagnosis. And, you know, he says something funny about, well, it's not the doctor's fault, but you know, the, the, the computer can, do this millions of times in terms of analyzing and trying again and, you know, and never sleeps. And so the ability of artificial intelligence to analyze images and video um, is going to have some dramatic impacts in our lifetime. So, Scott, I know you did a lot of um, the, the work on the Did You Know video, and you've, you've been a, a shock and awe guy with ed tech conferences, I think, really getting the attention of leaders to say, you know, we got to pay attention to this. We got to, you know, look at what we're doing in our schools. Um, how does AI and machine learning and all that stuff fit into your sort of worldview and, and as you work with, with um, administrators and administrators to be? Yeah, I'm a uh, economic workforce uh, nerd uh, <laughs> as the side hobby. Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about workforce prep and career readiness and so on. Uh, the number of job categories that AI is going to affect is astronomical. Um, and we're already starting to see the emergent variety of um, reports from economists, you know, jobs about what percentage of your job is automatable and, uh, and so on. And so um, we're already starting to see the early days of that. And definitely over the next decade, 15 years, uh, we're going to see a whole lot of poaching of jobs by software. So what do schools do about this? You know, some some of these articles and things that we'll read will just be kind of like, wow. And I'm reminded of Ian Jukes. You know, Ian Jukes was one of the first people I saw at a conference. I'm, I was at TCEA, you know, talking about exponential change and, you know, retinal uh, screens and implants and all kinds of things. And and so some of that just seems like the Jetsons being very distant and and a future that's exciting, but it's but it's not here today. Um I mean, practically, what what do you think the the implications of what we see happening with AI, the the job transition and displacement we're going to see? I mean, should should that be doing anything for what you know high school diplomas include in terms of requirements today, or what 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 should well, I, happen? Right. So I think the ongoing question for schools um, is what skills are we giving students that aren't automatable. Um, and so, you know, we have a decent amount of research that shows us that roughly 80 to 85% of your average kid's day-to-day -day class experience is low-level factual recall and procedural regurgitation, which is exactly the stuff that's automatable. 
Um, and so if we're not spending a greater percentage of students learning time on those upper level blooms, you know, we're level three and four webs, depth of knowledge wheel stuff, we're turning out people who are easily automatable. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think we have sort of this moral, ethical, educational obligation to really take a hard look at what we're asking kids to do and say, how do we do more uh, of this stuff that is, you know, which is a great news. It's essentially the human stuff, right? Not the stuff that can be done by the machine. Um, and we're not having that conversation deep enough in most places to actually see changes in classroom practice. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, of course, is that we're starting to see the emergence of blended learning models and, you know, school systems that are building around the idea that the AI sits side by side with teachers through adaptive learning systems and so on. Yes. And that we can then actually deliver a similar quality of education, if not better, by using the machine side by side with a qualified instructor. Um, and so we're starting to see the emergence of models that are designed around that idea, just like corporations are starting to do. Absolutely. My wife is a real witness to that. Um, she teaches in Oklahoma City at a school um, for homeless students, and her third and fourth graders um, utilize the iPad, and they have Lexia uh, Core 5 for literacy development and language. They use front row math, and both of those are differentiated and adaptive, and it is amazing the ways they can identify gaps and help students work on their specific issues. And it really presents a challenge for her in terms of doing direct instruction in a subject like math. Um, but, I mean, this is the challenge that all teachers actually are facing, right? Every stu Students are not on the same page with their understanding and, and their comprehension and skill level with, uh, with, with anything. Uh, and certainly math is an example. And so... I think we just, we've had this conversation. She, she cannot imagine teaching without those adaptive apps. And it's not like the kids are on them all day. There's all kinds of things that they do with their makerspace and their, I mean, their class meetings and, and the work that they do, the projects, Genius Tower. There's all kinds of stuff that, that they're doing that's not just being on the iPad, but, but that part of the adaptive, um, learning is, it's just so powerful. And I think somehow we need to help parents understand that power and embrace it because, um, I'm in an interesting situation at my school and we're, we're very successful, um, traditional, you know, private institution. And, and we, I mean, we have two kids going to Stanford this year. We've got, you know, always it's just an amazing who's who of where these kids are going to college and, and where they've ended up going. And so, technology hasn't fit into that traditional mold. And I'm sure as you've worked in Mumbai and other places too, you know, working with international schools and, and schools that, that end up sending a lot of kids to selective colleges, sometimes that is a challenge to say, hey, you know, why should technology fit into what we've been doing? It's very, very successful. I, I think that there's a need, that's a bandwagon to be on, a drum to beat, to say, you know, adaptive learning platforms can really be transformative. And it's not that we're just going to, you know, turn over the kids to the computer-aided instruction lab of sit in your cubicle and, you know, don't talk to anybody like you might imagine happening in some places and it might might happen um it can it can happen in a very interactive and relational you know classroom environment so i think that uh that that's that's going to be pardon me back to you know jobs of the future you know folks who are able to identify and build you know adaptive learning platforms that really transform 
the, the learning that's possible, that that's a huge part of the present and the future. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's see. We've got, what's that? My turn to pick. It's your turn to pick. Go for it. Okay. I'm going to pick this whole issue of whether or not president Trump's Twitter stream and other politicians, Twitter streams are a public forum. Uh, some people know that I have a law degree and, and teach school law and I'm pretty interested in this idea. The basic idea is that if, if the government doesn't, isn't required to create a public forum where people are allowed to speak and engage in dialogue, but if it does, then it can't discriminate based on viewpoint. And so the legal argument here is that lawyers have responded by sending a letter to President Trump and are starting to do so with some other politicians about this idea that you can't, that your Twitter stream where you engage with the American public uh, and send messages out and receive messages, that you are creating a, a public forum and then you can't block the people who disagree with you because that's viewpoint discrimination. And this is a completely new legal issue and I'm fascinated by it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so the two, there's two articles, um, that, uh, that Scott dropped, dropped in, uh, ProPublica from June 7th, Trump's not the only one blocking constituents on Twitter. And then the New York Times on June the 6th, Twitter users blocked by Trump seek reprieve, citing First Amendment. I think this is, the whole thing about Trump tweeting is fascinating. Um, I have a, a friend who, if I was to mention her name, uh, I'm sure, well, Heck, let's say her name, Susan Bearded. Okay. Susan is awesome. Susan has been working, um, out of the Department of Education in, in the ed tech office. And I'm not going to be disclosing anything secret here. What I got to, Michelle and I got to get together with her about a month ago at a conference in Los Angeles. And she was just describing the layers of bureaucracy within the Department of Education when they want to share something as educational technology folks. You know, I think there's three layers of bureaucracy that they need to go through for approval. And so, you know, it's just incredible to see what's happening with, with him in terms of just, you know, having that direct access to, to Twitter and un, unfiltered access. So, um, I, um, the other, the other set, the other linked issue to this, cause, cause what we're talking about is whether there needs to be constraints on public officials being able to block folks because that would restrict their ability to express their opinion and, and communicate with them. I think the whole idea of privacy in public officials is pretty important as well. You know, we've had a lot of discussion about private email servers and, um, you know, the degree to which the, what, to what degree does a public official have privacy in their communication? You know, should they be allowed to privately communicate with anybody? I was talking with, uh, one of our, one of our tech staff today that I think that, that needs to be an important part of digital citizenship is talking about privacy, how important it is, how we need to champion it, how we shouldn't just, you know, say, hey, I'm not, I'm not a criminal, I'm not a terrorist, so you, you know, it doesn't matter what people look at or what people see. No, we should be able to have private conversations. So many things in society, uh, move forward through private conversations that may or may not be approved of by the authorities. And while we might assume benign authorities right now in the United States, maybe, uh, look at what's happening in Qatar. Look at what's happening in Bahrain. Look at what's happening in so many different parts of the country as far as authorities, uh, not, not supporting freedom of expression and, you know, using surveillance for some real nefarious, uh, 
nefarious purposes. So where do you fall in all that, Scott, as far as public officials, privacy, um, communication, all that stuff? Uh, obviously public officials need to have some level of privacy in order to get their business done, right? Otherwise they wouldn't be second guessed, um, and held up by public queries and, uh, you know, every, every second as, you know, somebody tried stalling techniques and, um, interrogation and whatever. Like we have to have some level of privacy for people to have conversations in government to actually get work done rather than spending all their time looking over the shoulder responding to people. So the question of what's a public record and when obviously is an important one. Sometimes we delay those time-wise because of security reasons or whatever. Um, but, you know, the issue in this case is really less about privacy and more about um, does social media constitute a public forum when initiated by a government official? Um, in which case is blocking people basically viewpoint discrimination? Um, and I think they got an interesting case. Is this something that's, that, that's then going to be heard? Pretty soon. Uh, initially just wrote a letter to President Trump asking him to quit it, um, but it says that if he doesn't solve the problem, that yes, a lawsuit is coming. Um, and of course, it'll take eight years to resolve itself because that's the sure. term slowly. But it's a very interesting legal argument. Ben, ben Wilkoff is asking in the chat, is there a consideration for not asking questions of the public because it presents a burden for folks and it constitutes a formal survey and is illegal because those questions have to be approved? Yeah, I don't totally understand that question. So maybe Ben can clarify. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that, Ben. Because in this case, Trump's not asking questions of the public. He's just saying stuff to the public and then allowing all the public to reply except the ones he doesn't agree with. Um right. So in which case he's really favoring one sector of the American public. I think his behavior with uh, a certain gentleman named Comey is going to be a, a pretty interesting um, headline for a while. And we're going to, we're going right. to, it's going to be interesting to see how all that plays out. Right. Cause there's limits on the degree to which you're able to um, tell people to right. be loyal to you and to, yeah, it's, we're, we're, we may see some very exciting things in the history of uh, the, the Republic, right? In the, in the weeks. No, absolutely. Right. But if you're a politician and you're creating a public communication channel and you're allowing the public to communicate back with you, you can't all of a sudden say, well, I only want these people communicating with me and the rest of you who I'm supposed to be representing, I'm going to block out because I don't like the fact that you disagree with me. Um, or, you know, you're causing me too many, too many headaches. Um, you know, like, we can't, we don't filter town halls, uh, well, they're not supposed to at least, for only one viewpoint, right? Like we have to let everybody in that's in the region. We can't just say only my party people can come in. Well, Trump needs to switch to Mastodon instead of Twitter because there are no direct messages in Mastodon. So everything that is shared is open there public. I guess I'm sure you probably still can block people, but so that, that, <laughs> issue, that issue may still be there. But one of the connections that links to state politics and education is in Oklahoma. We have a very active Sunday night Twitter chat called Okla Ed, and it has been very interesting, still is interesting and exciting to see participation by some state senators, some state representatives, uh, by some board members, you know, certainly by and large um, educators, administrators, um, you know, teachers that, that uh, th those are the most folks who are participating but it's pretty interesting to have that level of engagement, right? Because 
I have not gone to one of our state senators or representatives offices, you know, met individually with them. My wife has had had that's, you know, both state and federal actually visit her, her classroom. Our governor, Mary Fallon, was in her in her classroom and uh, her kids interviewed her for a podcast last year. So she she's had a very outlier amount of access to public officials. But most of us don't. And, and you know, the opportunity, I've had some nice exchanges with our state representative and then also with our state senator who's now going to run for mayor in Oklahoma City. That, for me, has been really cool. I mean, it's been very powerful. And so, um, yeah, these issues are interesting about what what kinds of behaviors may or may not be appropriate and even legal, you know, as far as public officials. We certainly know things in terms of, of email and, and those kind of things. But yeah, social media is the Wild West. So it's going to be exciting to see what comes up in this. Right. Emma? Well, as always, the law will be outpaced by the technology. Right. It will. It will. Um, am I slowing down a little bit in my video? My Mac said I've got to, if I close Google Chrome, my laptop will cool off more but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I may need to get the new. Wes, you want to hear my prediction? What's that? Uh, my prediction is that the Harvard article that I linked to, Harvard rescinds the offers to incoming freshmen over hateful memes. Uh, this is, of course, is about the story where uh, 10 incoming first-year students at Harvard uh, were now denied, retroactively denied admissions because they were sharing um, – Jokes about sexual assault, ethnic and racial groups, the Holocaust, and so on. And my prediction is that this will now become mentioned in approximately 99.8% of all digital citizenship presentations over the next year at every conference imaginable. You want to take me up on that bet? Oh, man, I don't think so. You know, I sadly, the extent of digital um, Internet safety, digital citizenship education, which I think our oldest son received – was like one lesson from Common Sense Media, which was the drunken pirate teacher, right, who had her teacher certification taken away because she posted a picture of her holding a beer, you know, and then her professional life ended. Yeah, so maybe that's going to become that new poster child uh, article that they're, that we're going to share. That That's incidentally a huge bandwagon. We I've uh, co-authored a five-year strategic plan at our school for digital citizenship, and we are working with our team. In fact got to be careful because I, I, I can't I, – this isn't official, and I am not preempting our communications department, which will be communicating this officially. But there is dial. – I'll say this. There is dialogue about the possibility, uh, because things haven't been decided for sure, about having an ed camp focused on digital citizenship in the spring next year. And I really – I'm energized by these conversations because there's so many different things that touch on this, you know, wellness, uh, student voice and empowerment, um, healthy life balance, intellectual property. It's a big tent, right, that surrounds it. And it's so much more than just don't be stupid, you know, like these kids or the student or whatever. So you guys do some digital citizenship discussions uh, with your college students? Uh oh. Sorry. Uh, oh, my college students are all graduate students, right? They're teachers who want to be principals, principals who want to be superintendents. Um, we talk about it from a leadership standpoint, but not from a – I haven't really talked about that much from a personal standpoint. Is digital footprint something that's um, relevant yep. as, for them as far as – I would think in terms of their participation and the degree to which they want to be on social media and 
all those kind of things. It's a slow conversation, actually. So school leaders are also slow to wake up to the powers of having a powerful digital footprint. Uh, yeah. Even those footprints for their school organizations, it's mostly around broadcasting newsletter type items rather than interactivity. How, how has it been this round? I know, you know, from University of Iowa and then University of Kentucky and now to see you, how, how does it feel as a higher ed professor, um, with a Twitter following and a, and a blog and a digital footprint? What's that experience like now in 2017 for you? Good. You know, I just topped 50,000 followers on Twitter, which is a pretty big uh, milestone and uh, continue to find new people to engage with and learn from. Um, slowed down on my blogging a little bit during the transition and the move here um, and getting started with a new job, but I'm uh, starting to pick back up again. So that's been fun. And uh, yeah, no slowdown. Good stuff. Do you, where where do you fall in terms of feeling about the relevancy of what you might write publicly on a blog, you know, versus articles and things like that? And is there tension there for you, or is that does that feel feel good and comfortable? Uh, the tension for me is always writing in non-public spaces, right? Uh, as a tenured faculty member who is supposed to go up for full professor here someday, uh, you know, your course is supposed to write these scholarly journal. Uh, articles that go into academic journals that essentially nobody reads. And every time I do that, even though that's what I'm supposed to do for job success in my setting, it feels like I'm burying my writing in a hole in the backyard. Um, and so uh, I had to, uh, as part of my crossover here to the university, um, had to talk a little bit about my research. And I had two comparison charts um, where I showed, you know, how often my top research articles have been shared. Uh, and some of them have been shared a decent amount for a scholarly article. And then, of course, it was just dwarfed by my top blog posts by a factor of like 100 or 1,000, you know. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's very hard to walk away from that once you have it and say, hey, I'm going to take my writing and six people are going to see it instead of, you know, 60,000 or whatever. Uh, so that's that's always a challenge for me. Are you maintaining the intellectual property right to cross-post those articles on your own website, or are law journals and places where you're publishing not smiling friendly upon folks who would want to do that, and they just still want to be the sole source of, of that article? Uh, it depends on the journal. Most journals are now giving us um, scholarly authors permission to repost on our own sites. Um, they're just not supposed to go any further than that, so... We can yeah. make one copy of it on our own blog, for example. Interesting. But it does depend on the journal and, and what you sign when you send them your paper. Right. Well, we're getting close to the top of the hour. Boy, this has gone fast. Um, yeah. I think we'll maybe talk about another article or two, and then we'll do do some Geeks of the Week. Um, okay. uh, there's a couple of fun ones that are pretty quick. I'll mention well, just fun in terms of they're just kind of interesting. Well, one of them is definitely not fun for the topic. But anyway, uh, Amazon has refunded over $70 million of kids' unauthorized in-app purchases. This was from Ars Technica on May the 31st. And so you can log in to Amazon to see if you have any potential um, uh, purchases that would, would uh, count. But, you know, they've, they, there's been some changes as far as what – uh, companies are supposed to do in terms of parental permissions and uh, Amazon got in trouble for this. Actually, Apple did as well. And so did Google, but they both uh, settled. Apple had paid $32.5 million in 2014 and Google had paid 19 million. Um, so this was 
talking about, you know, how, how easily kids were able to simply click a, click a button and then, you know, purchase things on their, uh, their parents' credit card. And then the other one that is fast, um, I certainly don't put this in the, uh, under the um, banner of fun, um, but it's, it's, it's a quick one. Um, this was also from Ars Technica on, uh, did I, am I still here? Okay, good. You're just muting your mic. That's good. You just got really quiet. Did I lose? Sometimes I've gone offline during the show, so I'm just talking away. Uh, dead, dead daughter's parents have no right to access her Facebook account. Berlin court says abiding by family's wishes would set a dangerous privacy precedent. So this is interesting from a legal perspective as far as the international law that's involved because this is a German court, right? This isn't in the United States. Um, it certainly speaks to a digital literacy, citizenship kind of thing. Talk about password management, you know, the need to document your passwords, you know, have your kids write down their passwords, have everybody, you know, in their family. Um, my parents are, are getting older, going to probably move into a retirement community here later in the year. They've been very diligent about, you know, here's our social media or, you know, here's here's our here's all our online accounts. You know, all of those sorts of things are written down and we know where where to access those. Um, so we're definitely seeing interesting things always, you know, between countries and, and Eric Schmidt in that Google video that I referenced earlier talks a little bit about that. The importance of the open web that connects to Qatar and the Middle East and what we've seen with some countries, you know, threatening, uh, the shutdown and, and, and you know, being able to, to block things and disallow things. And so hopefully we're going to still continue to have an open web flourish, even though there's going to be downsides to it. But, um, certainly the more terrorist acts and things that we see and the debates over encryption and the degree to which we should be able to have private conversations, all of those things are pretty important. And, um, you know, the, the open web that we enjoy today, um, it's going to continue to change. Uh, certainly the web is far less open than it was. And there's, I'm trying to think if it was Eric Schmidt or that was another, another video that I had seen. Um, I think it was Schmidt that was talking about just at the beginning of the web. They just hadn't anticipated the criminality, which is obviously a part of society. So anyway, those uh, those legal aspects are going to continue to be with us. I think you're going to continue to have an important role in the automated society of the future, Scott, because you're always going to be able to give that legal perspective. Maybe so. I hope so. All right. Well, uh, any other articles there you want to comment on or or mention uh i put a couple articles up there one is called the disappearing computer it's um walt mossberg's last com ever which is kind of a big deal yeah um accompanied with the latest pew research center report on the internet of things you know the idea of both of those is this idea that right now we mostly think of computers as separate devices that we carry around with us or they sit on our desk. And what we're going to see is we're going to see this massive explosion and it's already starting behind the scenes in roads and cars and buildings and so on, where we're going to have very small, more limited function computing in all the objects that surround us, right? So our furniture, our appliances, the floors that we walk on, our walls and ceilings, the sidewalks, uh, transportation, right? Um, the physical objects that are around us, you know, stores and lights and, uh, you know, street lights and uh, billboards and bus stops. Like everything's going to have sensors in it and little computers and they're going to interact with each other. And it's just sort of, you know, we don't really know what all of that means yet. Kind of like CRISPR, right? We don't really know what the long-term implications are of 
every physical object having computing embedded within it and being able to connect to and talk with each other. But, you know, it's coming. So yeah. I just threw both of those articles in there too because, um, you know, they just talk about that idea. Absolutely. Um, Schmidt talks a little bit about that in that video as well because the interviewer asked him, hey, him, hey, aren't we headed for a, a dark future with IoT because everything's going to be hacked and people are just going to buy the cheapest devices? And he basically says, well, you know, the companies that can offer for this are going to have a competitive advantage, and that's a real important marketing thing. So he really thinks that the market is going to address those those issues. But I think we, we all certainly need to look at what we're personally choosing uh, in terms of being early adapters, you know, to put into our homes and um, – how we're going to try to have those things be secure and not subject to hacking and uh, being well, utilized right. for things that we didn't intend. Right. But we don't really know how to pick, uh, say, for example, home systems that are safe from hacking because we don't really understand what that means, the average citizen. Right. We have shown for a long time now that we're willing to trade convenience for security or privacy. Um, and so, yeah, this is going to be a big issue in the years to come. Where are you and your family on the home assistant? Do you have an Alexa dot Google assistant? Any of that yet? We do not. Um, yeah, it just seems like for the capability that's being offered, it still seems like a relatively frivolous expense for this household as we also are sending kids to college. That's right. Well, uh, and then the Apple, you know, AirPod or whatever is 350 bucks, you know, and they're saying it's more um, like a Sonos, you know, AirPlay you know, speaker, but I was like, really Apple? Come on. I mean, I know I love Apple, but I, I don't know that that's going to be, I think I'm going to be getting a, me uh, a series of, or a set of three Google mesh routers, the next generation home routers that'll connect and, and, you know, be, be speedier than what we have with our extended Wi-Fi than before we yeah. get, get that speaker, but we will yeah, see. Lots of, lots of things to buy. You have to be strategic, right? Absolutely. Put your priorities in line. So, what do you have for your geek of the week this week, Scott? We probably better – we're all at the top of the hour, so we'll wrap okay. it up. Um, geek of the week. So uh, every year, Mary Meeker uh, – yes, I got her name right – from KPCB issues her Internet Trends Report, um, which has just unbelievable massive number of slides and details about the state of the Internet today and as it will be over the next year or so. And she's accumulated a cult following <laughs> in the tech industry uh, and also, you know, um, corporations and advertisers and so on. And so she has a lot of segments within her 355 slide slide deck, um, you know, focused on different things. Uh, even the novice who doesn't understand half of what she's talking about can see very easily that, you know, the explosion of mobile uh, the business opportunities in the developing world, which is why I put that Kenya article in. Um, the rapid changes that we're seeing in healthcare, for example, because of technology, um, you know, the impacts that it's having on the entertainment industry and so on. Like there's just these big chunks of data and graphs and charts all throughout this thing. And this is a big event every year. Like as, as much as the tech community looks forward to, you know, the latest Apple announcements or whatever, there's a whole lot of people waiting for this slide deck every year. So uh, have fun digging in. Awesome. I didn't know about that. That, that is fantastic. 
Well, um, my Geek of the Week is a geomap. So um, there's a, a website available to make your geomaps called Story Maps, and I've got a link to a, a rather sobering map, which is the 2017 terrorist attacks. And, you know, we've had a fairly incredible number of terrorist attacks to include some in Iran uh, yesterday morning that were at the parliament and at their um, shrine for uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini and um Anyway, just all kinds of things, but it's really, I, I've loved geomaps forever. I love geography. I love the idea of taking uh, media and information, whether that's text, images, video, hyperlinks, and then being able to contextually place those on a map and then be able to look at patterns and, and look at things for understanding. So check out story maps. And I, if, if uh, you end up using any of these resources and things that we talk about on the show, we would love to hear from you and uh, love to also have any, any just input and feedback that you may have for the show. So as we wrap up, Scott, where are you findable digitally? Where can people read your ideas, connect with you? And I'll throw this in too. What's coming up for you in the summer? Cause I think you're going to be headed to San Antonio here in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yes, I am. Cause we're having dinner. Um, <laughs> I can be findable at dangerouslyirrelevant.org. That's my blog. I can be found at at McLeod, M-C-L-E-O-D, on Twitter. Um, also around on Instagram and so on. If you just click on the contact link on my blog, you find all the social media places that I'm available. Uh, I just finished keynoting and doing presentations at two school district tech conferences here in Colorado this week. That's what I've been doing the last three days. Um, the state ed tech conference here in Colorado starts next week and i'm keynoting the leadership pre-conference for that and then we'll be at that conference the rest of next week and then the following week i guess is isti down in san antonio and i'll be there and dean Cheresky and i are doing a presentation on our new book that's coming out and i'll be hanging out in the bloggers lounge uh you know the rest of the conference and seeing old friends and new friends Awesome. Awesome. Well, I am uh, Wes Fryer at W Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org uh, for the blog. And uh, we'll able, be able to be at ISTE on Sunday and Monday. Uh, we're going to be, my wife and I, doing an iPad media camp in Jackson Hole, Wyoming later that week. So we're actually going to fly up on Tuesday to go to Jackson Hole uh, and then be up there. But I'm excited Really, I think every other year I've only gotten one thing at ISTE. It's it's hard, and I don't know what happened, but the planets aligned, and I I got like four things approved, and then they've also they're doing something that's it's not it's not the ignite, but it's some kind of short session where you do ten quick slides. In fact, I have to make those slides tonight about infix because this is the extended deadline. That's on Sunday. So anyway, I am looking forward to that and. Uh, uh, definitely some offline uh, time in nature with the family to uh, be unplugged as as I feel like I normally have some silicone plugged into my head with uh, computers and iPads and other kinds of devices. So we want to say thank you to our guests or, uh, in the chat, Peggy George and Ben Wilkoff. Peggy has dropped a link. Um, to, or Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's... Uh, yeah, there's there's uh, Scott's contact information, which we will drop in the show notes. We want to remind everybody that you can access all of the resources we've talked about at edtechsr.com. You can check out the show notes to this show, and you can also find the archives of this in video form on our YouTube channel, and you can also find the video and 32-kilobit audio versions downloadable from our website or wherever you find podcasts. I like Pocket Casts, but we've still got 
folks that are doing many other podcasting um, platforms. And so encourage you to check that out. So Scott, a parting thought when you've just given your keynotes, what, what was, what was your parting, you know, go forth and do what uh, as you were encouraging school leaders to, to take action. I'm sure you were, you were encouraging them to take action. I always encourage them to take action. I'm trying to show uh, people what powerful learning environments can look like by telling stories of schools uh, that I've been able to visit and um, usually close with the slide of, uh, you know, something along the lines of we can give kids wings and do amazing things. So let's go do it. Awesome. All right. Well, with that, thank you everybody for tuning in and until next time, stay safe, stay secure and uh, share EdTech SR. <laughs>